If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. We are the brothers, both DMs and players. I'm the one with the penchant for cartography, Travis. You fancy lad. <laughs> and I'm the one that spends two hours drawing one room of a dungeon, then panics, and then the rest plays out like a horrifying fever dream. Jordan. <laughs> I'm just throwing stuff around and I don't know any answers. <laughs> Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. Doodling your dirigibles with lofty expectations for incredible games. <laughs> uh, today we're going to talk about maps. That's why it got a little weird there. And how to build memorable encounters with locations. So it doesn't matter if you use theater of the mind or drawn maps like virtual tabletops or cardboard or just about anything. With all of our content, we try and make it applicable to players and DMs. And we think what we do in this one, you'll find super useful regardless of your situation. Yeah, absolutely. For players, it's all about how to use and look for elements added by a savvy DM to ripen that role-playing. DMs might not always think to have, you know, things like a candlestick to describe that or just like a pillow to, you know, suffocate somebody. <laughs> anyway, there's so many details you can add to a map. I like that you went to murder with both of your... <laughs> What else do you do with pillows? <laughs> so my maps that I use at our table are pretty high quality, yeah? Yes, I'd say so. Would you say they're incredible? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Am I putting words into your mouth? <laughs> you think I'm the greatest DM to ever helm a D&D table? I'm going to stop you there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, either way, my confession today is that those are not my maps. Those are mostly cobbled together from the maps that are produced by our guest today. So how would you describe the quality of the fantasy battle maps that our guest produces? Can I use the celebrity attractiveness scale? Uh, sure, since that's the official recognized scale of maps. <laughs> okay, well, if the normal scale runs from Giovanni Ribisi to Gary Busey... Sure, <laughs> sure. Then his maps are Chris Hemsworth. Wow, all yeah. right. So we're getting into some good fantasy stuff. We're getting into hot Thor action. <laughs> so that's kind of where my signature catchphrase comes from, which is give me Gabriel's maps or give me death. Yeah, you say that like every night, you just yell it out in the night <laughs> from your room in the middle. Something like that. Gabriel Picard is on the show today to share some thoughts about how to make great environments and how to use them to the best of our abilities. So if you aren't familiar with his work, you can find it on Roll20 and Drive Through RPG. There's 23 pages of his maps on He's Roll20. Busy. He's making great stuff. If you want to go back far enough, he also sometimes goes by Mad Cow Chef on DeviantArt. Welcome, Gabriel. Thanks for joining. It's a pleasure to be here. I am honestly almost embarrassed to mention how many of your map packs I've purchased at this point. But honestly, when I 
put them all together and I have a really cool encounter planned out for my players, I don't fucking care. I just go, whatever. <laughs> this is perfect. This is what I needed. Yeah. he. It took me a while to get onto it because he kept trying to sell me on it. And since I'm the laziest of lazy, and I was like, <laughs> you mean I got to put things together? But then it was so fun to start cobbling together your maps and making exactly what I wanted out of them. Absolutely. Well, my niece appreciates you paying for her braces. So good work. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, there's, there's a feel-good story behind the maps. Yeah, I'm glad we're that. doing something good with it. That <laughs> makes me feel way better. <laughs> I'll buy more. <laughs> Probably tonight after I get all excited about maps. So we're going to learn a little bit more about Gabriel's work uh, in the Heroes stage. Our first segment. And then we're going to go to the strategy stateroom where we're going to dive into those tips and tricks. And we're going to wrap that all up with Morden's Forge, where we're actually going to apply some of those tips and tricks to a random location. Perfect. More than theoretic. <laughs> Applied map making. Awesome. Let's go to the hero stage. This is the hero stage, where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. All right, so this segment, we're focusing on folks doing amazing work for the community and who raise the bar for some of the niches that they work in. And Gabe, this is something that you do on the regular. So again, thanks so much. How often do fans reach out and say thanks? Oh, the community is absolutely wonderful. I get thanked, if not daily, at least weekly. <laughs> is that kind of what's it's... kept you going on your map making? Is just the feedback you've been getting or? Well, then my muse is, you know, a chain smoker from Jersey who, you know, pushes me at all times to just make more things. So <laughs> I don't think I can help that part. Excellent. <laughs> Who's, who is this uh, chain smoker? I, I don't know. That's that's my muse. Oh, I she see. Just, <laughs> if only we had all had such Come inspiration. Come on, we gotta, we gotta move these maps by Thursday. <laughs> awesome <laughs> very good you're on the factory floor send them over we could use a little of that what's the uh what is the ratio of thanks to requests that you get um i usually solicit requests almost anytime i get a thanks so i always keep the door open there i'm always interested in finding out what people really want and what would make their games fun because i know what makes my games fun and i've already made it <laughs> nice you do make them for yourself first i assume like you're using these maps in your games a lot of the time sometimes other times i'm just building up a big stock because i never know what i might want to run in the future so fair enough good good to keep uh, ahead of the curve because i can't produce them fast enough for a weekly game so i guess this was more or less born out of needing map assets for yourself huh yep that's the way most of us get to mapping is, was there a, a kind of an initiation? Like, what was the tipping point for you to say, hell, I can actually do this? There's so many different areas of tabletop role-playing that you could dive into. But yeah, like, what made maps your thing? Well, I can't write, so... <laughs> it was going to be a visual art one way or the other. The maps always, you know, always seemed like the, the first place to start almost any adventure, you know, the map at the beginning of the book. Well, I love that. So I'll, I want one for my game, and then I want one for my next game, and then before long, I'd produce many, many of them. <laughs> Just keep making them better. That's fair. Process of an elimination, though. I like it because maps is is my weak point. What uh, what other kind of creative passions fuel this this hobby? Uh 
food. <laughs> I, I mean, I was originally a chef, so I kind of love the food aspect of it and love some of the history of food. So I will definitely include that in my games. Interesting. Maybe may slightly more historically accurate than necessary. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. So is that what what you transitioned from when you started making the maps full time? Yeah. That was what I was doing immediately beforehand and sometimes during. Right on. It's safe to say that this is the full-time, this is the career. This is what you work on daily. This is my full-time career currently. I'm entirely supported by the RPG community. So that's a pretty awesome group to be supported by. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, the RPG community is so amazing in the sense that it really is like, it's a humble together kind of community. And I see that exemplified all the time when, you know, people dedicate characters, NPCs in their group to players that have passed or, you know, just when I see Patreons get exploded overnight uh, by by the community and that support, like we're, we love this hobby and we're willing to pay for it to to support others to support us to someone that we see is doing good stuff and the person behind it is good as well i think that's when it really blows up is when they know that they've been uh giving to the community for a while already it's definitely if you have to pick a group that that's the group i'd pick they look after me well (laughs) so since he's doing it full time you heard him folks uh that means you can just hammer him with those map requests Keep them coming. I only have like a year's worth of work planned. So after that year, what would I do? (laughs) What would you do? So how? what would you tell someone that's trying to get started making their own maps? I would say there's some absolutely wonderful tutorials out there. You don't need a ton of skill. And it is incredibly rewarding, even if you are not the world's most talented map maker, to have something that you can generally say, well, I made this. I mean, that's half the fun of all role-playing stuff is making the character, making the NPC, making the world, making your own map is just part of that. Yeah, yeah, just finding what you love to make. Absolutely, and like you said, uh, you add more flavor to your world with culinary, you know, pizzazz, and everyone (laughs) has their own thing, whether it's music or, you know, linguists that want to add more to to the languages of their world, like that's what makes this community go is that everyone's got their specialty. Conlangers are some incredibly interesting people as far as obsession goes. They're, <laughs> they're hard to keep up with. No doubt. Yeah, it's a I find at least uh, in my experience that tabletop role playing games attract a certain type of person that is generally really, really well educated and has expertise in a lot of different areas. And yeah, it's it's so cool to see people run away with things that they, you know, that they specialize in. Can you take us through the process that you make maps? Sure. It's pretty simple these days, as I've gotten a little bit of practice <laughs> since I started. Uh, I usually choose a theme. That's the real obvious thing, because I'm making maps either for my game or I'm making a pack that's one of the maps is based on my game, and the rest are just going to be, you know, generally fitting of a theme. So it might be swamps, for instance. Uh, once I choose a theme, I gather all the resources I need, which may involve making a bunch of textures. I might do some 3D models for individual things like plants. 
if they are too complex for me to hand draw personally. And after I've gathered everything I need to make it, I make one sample map, see what I, what I made that actually looks good, and see what I made that I need to make a second time. Once I get that done, I then make the second one. And usually that one's good enough, but if some of their things don't look quite good, so on and so forth until all the elements look good together. Hmm. And wow. then I set up a template for that, and then all of them will be made from that template. So they all are unified in texture and whatnot in case you need to add elements or other things. How long does it usually take you to, say, complete one of the, the average map packs? Like how much time and effort goes into that? takes me about a week, generally speaking, but it varies a lot. I mean, really simple train could be, you know, as little as five days, uh, something like a city that typically are very complex, and I have to, you know, hurt my head making sure all these stories <laughs> align with each other correctly could take a couple. Wow. Yeah, I've noticed, man, like, there's so many different elements that you you give to it. And I always find when I'm using your maps, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, it sure would be nice to to have this. And then I scroll down the list of <laughs> elements. And I'm like, oh, there it is. He thought of it before I did. <laughs> and so how has this process evolved since you started? Like, it sounded like it was, now it's a lot of work. Before it was a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> uh, well, for one thing, I'm just a lot more organized. I have a flow for the whole thing. Previously, I didn't have a very good, uh, when I gathered resources. I didn't necessarily gather everything I needed to start with. I started work, found out I was missing half the things I wanted, went back to stage one, got them, made mm. sure they worked. And there was a lot more back and forth, which wastes a lot of time. Gets a little less unified a product if you're not careful. So then things can be harder to use together, which doesn't help anyone else run their game. It's yeah. gotten organized with time. <laughs> what a concept. Uh, organization. I mean, I'm still, yeah, I still uh, struggle with that when I'm just prepping for each <laughs> each game. So I totally know what you mean. There's a lot to be said for workflow, for like whether it's doing yeah. any job, whether it's DMing or like a real job. <laughs> um, th yeah, there's a lot to be said for like figuring out your workflow and having kind of that routine. And actually, that's kind of what you're here to offer us today is is kind of a routine for adding to a to a location. Uh, I'm I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your experience with D and D. So, what was your first experience? What was your first exposure to Dungeons and Dragons? My very first was uh, I had uh, my father's girlfriend's son had like choose your own adventure kind of D and D books. Uh, they're very old school. I haven't seen them in ages, but. They were a thing you'd actually like roll for the fights and such. Oh, wow. And I saw those and I was, you know, maybe 10 at the time. So I went, I got some miniatures. I painted those. It uh, wasn't another couple of years till I was like 12 or 13 where I actually got the original like red books and such. I was terrible because I was 12. So I barely <laughs> understood how these games work, but I still had fun. Well, that's the nice thing about being young and playing them is because your imagination is doing most of the work for you. I had siblings. That always helps, too, because then you have players that can't run no matter how bad you are. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Nice. And what was that? Uh, we asked this of a lot of our guests. What was that inciting incident, that like mind explosion when you did get exposed to D&D? &D? What was that moment where you're like, holy crap, this is the greatest game? 
or this is going to be like I'm going to play this for a long time. I I guess I didn't have a single epiphany. It just it really made sense to me. It's like, oh yeah, we're you know I grew up you know using my imagination, making worlds and whatnot, and playing with my siblings, and this was merely an extension of it with enough rules so that they couldn't cheat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cheating bastards and imaginations, <laughs> <laughs> and obviously the uh, the map making is a huge element for you. But were there any other parts of tabletop gaming that really stood out for you, like that you just glommed onto? Or oh, I love world building. Has always been among my favorites. If I can build a unique world or setting, I'm super happy with that. Then you have people actually interact with it, and then it becomes a living world, and that's. That takes it from the the boring, or at least the theoretically interesting, to the applied interesting. And exposes all the things he didn't think of, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. So have you been building on one kind of world for a long time, or do you just kind of make new ones? Or I typically make a new one for each game if I can, because I can't resist starting over and trying something new. Yeah, yeah, just the temptation to get into a different theme or something. Halfway through one, something sparks, and you're like, I want to start a different game with this now. <laughs> Your characters and are all you dead. All New world. die. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Right on. So give us the, the rundown of what your current D&D experience looks like. Are you playing in weekly games, or, or how does that look? Currently, I'm playing in a weekly game, but it's it's Mouse Guard, not D&D. So. Oh, interesting. I haven't, I haven't been in a, an actual D&D game in a couple of months, so hopefully that'll get corrected before long. <laughs> well, at least you got, uh, you know, you always got to have one game going, otherwise you start to get that itch. Well, give us the, the quick rundown on what you love about Mouse Guard. Oh, well, same thing I love about all role-playing games. You get together with a fun group of people, you chat, you have fun, and you help create a narrative out of all that that is sometimes humorous, sometimes, you know, inspiring, and sometimes comical, whether intended or not. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you never really know what you're going to get, but it's always something crazy and that you never would have created by yourself, so I feel you. Right on. Well, I feel like we've gotten to know you a little bit. Let's hop over to the strategy stateroom and talk about some of those tips. This is the strategy stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. So before we recorded this, you were kind of throwing out some simple ideas on making better encounters. And what we're going to get into in this segment is a simple three-step checklist. The first strategy on this list was narrative reasoning. Can you take us through what you're thinking when you apply that to map making? Sure. Every uh, location has a reason it exists, either you know geological, historical, or if it's man-made, it's usually both existed and gone through some changes. The uh, basic questions are, why does it exist and what do you want to happen here? Get those in narratively, you then have some framework to work off of. I see. So, you know, for instance, if we if it was taking place in a tavern, it wouldn't just be necessarily a tavern. It was maybe something else beforehand, or it has like a, a special history behind the tavern. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's been in buildings of any age know that they've rarely been used only for one purpose since their uh, initial building. 
So you can include features from what it was previously, or if there's a temple that used to be nearby that of some evil god that got disassembled and they just used the uh, bricks and stones from it in the building of all the nearby buildings, you can see a uniformity from that. Or, well, you know, the history of the city it was on the location of a battlefield, so there's, you know, signs of that. Almost all places have, like, a long history, even if that history is, you know, from before whatever is currently there. So you can always come up with interesting narratives, and it makes most locations feel real. Yeah, so, you know, icebergs and ice flows have pieces of past ships that may be shipwrecked there, and I can see what you're saying about, like, finding a city built on a graveyard or an old battlefield that you might see some remnants just like gnarled trees or stuff like that with swords sticking out of them or swords growing through them. Building stones with uh, you look close and you can see the inscriptions from the you know the fact that they used someone's headstone to make it. Wow, oh, nice, that's good. <laughs> so when you start from that, do you just kind of build everything off of it, or do you go through like a certain amount of things to include, and that is enough to make it feel alive, or? I think once you have that, you don't need to build too much. You just need an interesting idea and a little bit of past, and then you can, you know, include those elements. And you don't need to decide everything right away. You can easily paint yourself into a corner by getting too far into it, but you just need a good idea. Always start with that. You have some place to go. Totally. And I guess what this avoids is that problem of, well, to go back to the example of the ice flow, like, oh, this is just an ice flow. Like, nobody's ever discovered it before. Like, that that's essentially the, the crux of this whole thing, is that everywhere there has been people before. And if we don't really kind of consider that, then we end up struggling trying to create really deep, interesting locations. Yeah, it ends up with a world that feels like, you know... Rather than a sandbox that anyone else has played in, a strangely <laughs> pristine environment where apparently everyone was plopped down all of a sudden one day. Yeah. <laughs> a little too clean. This creates for players a lot to kind of question and explore. And so as a player listening to this, you could just be encouraged to explore and to check things out and wonder why they're there. And it could lead to a lot more story that nobody thought it would go that way. Yeah, it gives a place for players to build stories off of and also gives them, you know, one that has history behind it, there's stuff to work with. I mean, if you're the party's necromancer and you find out that the tavern you're on is over an ancient battleground, is a lot different than if you find out the tavern is on, you know, originally sanctified holy ground. Those are two different narratives <laughs> for the, from the player's standpoint. Both very exciting. I want to see what happens next. <laughs> So your second is all about tactical elements. So yeah, take us through what tactical elements in a map means. Well, fighting in a box is boring, even if that box has history that the GMs told you or hinted at because there's writing on the wall that says yieldy battle happened in this empty box. <laughs> there's no so, sign of it, so don't look. So, you know, you need tactical elements, things like cover complex routes through the location, preferably non-linear ones. In other words, if it's a hallway, even if it's a twisty hallway, there's only one way to possibly go through it, and that's a little less interesting. Takes away player choice. Height variations are super fun, especially, you know, any kind of train that 
either one player or one monster type can easily get between, and others cannot. Uh, difficult ground, broken things, and then just in the description of all those things, suddenly you have objects and things that should be in that environment that a player can work with. If you describe an opulent ballroom, you know there's a chandelier that you can either drop on someone, swing off of, or whatever else. You can almost walk through an environment and look for opportunities for each one of the players' classes, because when you start rattling through some of these different elements that I can add in, you know, if I'm a barbarian, I might want an opportunity to huck myself off of something. So there's your height variation. And if I'm a squishy mage, then I want something to hide behind. And if I'm a rogue, I want a dark corner. Yeah, exactly. There's exciting opportunities for everyone. And tactically speaking, having those different things gives a chance for, you know, individual characters to shine. If there's a grand staircase and the barbarian has a chance to occupy that choke point while the other, you know, players are on the high balcony doing their thing, they both feel like they're a huge part of this battle. The barbarian knows that if everyone can rush the wizard, it's going to go poorly for him. The wizard, on the other hand, can be up there hucking fireballs and he feels like he's doing his or her job and the barbarians doing their job and everyone's happy and from the opposite standpoint too from the monsters so you've got players going through a monster's lair or something like that it's not just a a flat cave with no features one of the best examples was actually uh, that i really loved was from the blog the monsters know and that was all about how goblins would never run and just attack outright they would have hidey holes dug into every corner of their lair that give them full cover because why would you as a tiny uh, creature go and go head to head with Conan the Barbarian? Also, it's a lot of work to, you know, stand on the other goblin's shoulder just so you can carve out seven <laughs> foot tall ceilings. <laughs> That's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good call. So really what this comes down to is is just for the DM looking for those opportunities to add in places for each one of your players to shine, whether it's, I don't know, I suppose, direct player that you're thinking of shining in a particular place, or just throwing in more interesting bits and pieces. One of the best examples was actually uh, in our game using, uh, you were DMing Jordan, and my character pushed a huge stack of casks over onto a player. And You know, on the one hand, my character can run around those casks and carve at the bad guy with my sword, but it's a lot more interesting and a lot more fun to push those over, and you rewarded with pretty high damage, I would say. (laughs) But I took away one of your barrels of booze in the end. (laughs) That's right, yeah. We couldn't couldn't drink all the booze. And I think you touched on something, Gabe, that, that is a mistake that I often make in map making, which is I think of these really interesting things, but I don't add in the choices so yeah you were kind of talking and it made me think that each element that you were describing there was was all about giving players a choice whether to go high go low yes group story building you need you know a chance for everyone to have a stake in the story and that means decisions they get to make both good and poor and sometimes what you're doing is you know rather than making anyone shine if no one has the right skill you're becomes an interesting challenge. And that's fun too. It's fun to encounter things your characters are all distinctly bad at. 
Yeah, that's true. Because then it becomes, what can we do to work together here? And and it gets way more creative and sometimes real weird. (laughs) Yeah. And so on the flip side, players too have to take that into consideration when they are playing. You know, look for the interesting things that the DM might have added into those locations, especially when you're playing with battle maps of how can I use my environment to my advantage and what smart decisions can I as a player or as a character make in this situation? Anytime I've had anyone near a railing, players, they can hardly resist pushing them off. So. <laughs> I know it's that's... not always too hard to, you know, it's cat bait. You put yeah. something on the edge there and they just have to knock it off. There's nothing that draws them into a room quicker than a whistling NPC that's looking the other way. <laughs> so to to jump into your final tip, your final one is game-changing events. Yeah, environments don't need to be static. You don't have, you know, a room. Once you've drawn the room, it's now the only thing that's going to be there. Uh, if that room is on a ship and it's slowly filling with water then your map is constantly changing and the terrain is constantly changing. If you're in, you know, the active volcano and it's beginning to flood, that definitely is a slight change in how the map is going to play out from round to round. Even if you're in, you know, not those quite dramatic environments, if there's a bridge and it can be cut, then there's a very different story of how you get from point A to point B once the bridge is out. So things like that, major environmental changes and events that, you know, change the setting, add a lot of drama to it. And I suppose there can always be triggers for this, too, as far as player actions and things like that. Like, it's not just a foregone conclusion, but a good example would be from one of our recent games. Uh, Once a ship took enough damage, the mast was going to go over, and now it wasn't a viable ship. You know, it could have uh, some pretty serious ramifications in changing the location and the terrain that you're fighting on when a ship starts breaking in two. And if the mass becomes a bridge between two ships because it falls onto another one, then that's an, another different scenario again, too. So dynamic environments always, you know, add to things. The most common one, unfortunately, being just what the players set on fire. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, that, yeah. just like your, your catnip, to the last example, that's another one, is if there's something flammable in the room, it is going to get lit. <laughs> yeah, even if it's just wood. Is there an event that you can think of in one of your recent games that was just like off the rails? I'm just curious, because being someone that thinks about this a ton, your games must be pretty exciting. So is there like an encounter you remember? Oh, hmm. I mean, I did run a, a one-shot game uh, within recent memory that was secretly based on putt-putt golf <laughs> secretly <laughs> like only you knew about that or what? Oh, oh yeah and it wasn't until like the end that they began to figure out what it was it was the the layer of putsu putsu <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> i love it that's i can instantly see how that would make a really entertaining dungeon <laughs> yeah the, the giant windmill that grinds souls you know <laughs> I think they figured it out when there was the the cart race that they had to like loop the loop. They had like a tribe of goblins that had all these bizarre carts at the top, and they had to you know their 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 way to worship their god was to like loop the loop. So if they could make it, the the party had to you know 
figure out how to get their weird goblin cart at enough speed to actually make it all the way up and around and through to get to the other side. There was all the disastrous carts that had broken during this process. (laughs) That's amazing. I want to play that game now. That's fantastic. So anytime I get stuck, I should just go mini golfing. (laughs) Come up with some ideas. Oh, that's brilliant. Really with this, for the reflection here on you know, kind of game changing events is really for the DM anyways, the story building capabilities of this technique to continually add more interesting challenge. I can think of a couple of times where in a combat, you're starting to go, okay, now this is just a grind. And you can avoid that grind by adding those game changing events. And you can still have the same number of enemies. You can still have the same number of hit points. I found myself when I've kind of devised some ill thought out locations of going, oh, I'll just start cutting off HP off these guys because this is starting to feel boring. But that's because I didn't have any of those game changing events in there to really turn the tables or to shake things up. Yeah, when you have a horde of goblins and it's just gone on a little too long and you just need the right fireball to make that roof look like it's about to come down. And suddenly the, the whole scene becomes a entirely different kind of race. Oh, nice. So you, you'll often like use the character actions to instigate that change? Ideally, anything you can have where characters' choices determine narrative, those are the best possible narratives to write. Absolutely. And I guess from a player's perspective, we really do have to just look at how our character reacts when those tables turn. So like you said, when that ceiling starts coming down, do I try to run? Do I try to brace things? Do I try to, you know, so it's reacting appropriately, I think, to a lot of the environmental changes that are happening that makes role-playing far more interesting because now the barbarian that decided to run and hide when things started getting a little crazy has some making up to do to the rest of his party or some ground to regain in the eyes of his comrades. Or if he was ineffective because there was just too many opponents and was previously large fireballs kill a lot more goblins than one guy who gets in a single attack every round. He now has a chance to brace the ceiling while everyone else escapes because everyone loves sloth from the Goonies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good call. Awesome. So to recap, that was... narrative reasoning in every location and passing that through to some kind of tactical element that the players can use and then finally some kind of game-changing event and i think i'm going to be planning my uh my encounters very differently from yeah no fair enough i think i'm gonna be a lot more exciting from here on out (laughs) so let's hop over to our final segment morden's forge where we're going to use these ideas and see what we come up with This is Morden's Forge, where raw materials are reshaped, honed into tools and weapons for the most incredible of quests. Okay, so in this uh, Morden's Forge, what we're going to do is we're going to randomly roll on a d10 to determine our location and a d4 to determine our enemies, and then the three of us are going to apply your tricks, Gabriel, and uh, make a really cool encounter, I hope. We'll find out. <laughs> so the the first one that we get here, there goes the dice. Uh, four, we're going to do a swamp, and now it is inhabited by nobles. 
<laughs> noble swamp people. I, I dig it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that can work. Well, those tables went together pretty interestingly. <laughs> okay. So I guess we got to start out with some narrative reasoning. Well, you need a reason for, for nobles to be in a swamp. And it seems like either the swamp or the nobles, would, one or came after the other. Yeah, that's a good point. I was thinking the nobles, you know, got ousted from wherever they were before. And, and these nobles in particular had to set up in the swamp. But maybe it's the other way around. What if they were just really unwelcome nobles? Like, finally, the city got up and was just like, you are all awful. Get the hell out. And the closest they could stay to home was the swamp outside. <laughs> I, I like the ousted nobility story. That seems good. But the, the question for the environment is, you know, was what was here before? Was it a pristine swamp or was it inhabited by lizard folks or some other people that the nobility pushed aside when they moved in? I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like a, a whole colony of lizard folk that are now surrounding the the nobles estate and are pretty pissed off all the time could be a very good reason why the adventurers are involved at all because the nobles may have called them there to help get rid of all of these lizard folk only to find out that they were there because they were <laughs> shitty to begin with <laughs> as far as maybe what happened in the swamp before that would mean that a lot of the structures in there might have kind of like you were talking about earlier, uh, maybe a mix of that historical purpose. So you, we might find that the nobles have repurposed a lot of the buildings that the lizard folk had. What kind of lizard folk inspiration would you put into their game? Oh, if I could, I'd throw some watery tunnels under their structures that they may not know is there. Nice. Ooh, yeah. Because lizard folk can breathe underwater just fine. So there's, you know, secret tunnels all under the swamp. The nobility has just torn down whatever is there and taken over some of the uh, posts and beams and the new noble hall that they've put up over the swamp clearly have the original carvings of lizard god deities and such Yeah, that have been, you know, only partially cut away. Very cool. I'm getting a serious vibe from this location already. Absolutely. Should we move on to the tactical elements? Anything we're missing from there? Anything I suppose we need to decide what are they indoors or outdoors in this new swamp village? True. I suppose for the sake of freedom, we can do a kind of an outdoor location. I suppose so. What would an outdoor noble location look like? Outdoor location? Well, they need dwellings. So if it's an outdoor location, maybe they're trying to, you know, build a royal garden over the swamps to various effects. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> limited results or strange plants. <laughs> I would imagine they'd be turning their nose up at the limitations of what they could grow because nothing but swamp flowers grow there and they want to grow some lilies or lilacs or something like that <laughs> in their new hanging royal gardens. So we have the gardens that secretly have both tunnels under them and have various elements and blocks from the original lizard folk inhabitants and such. Yeah, all kinds of stone designs around the garden. And as far as giving some options, it's easy for you to have paths that are both overgrown and clean and all kinds of possibilities there, I'm sure. Yeah, both partially aquatic, bad terrain, mud, plenty of cover from swamp plants, and all that kind of stuff. The history of colonization by dumb people in, <laughs> his, in, in 
places that are naturally not their homes is perhaps they have tried to use stone as a building material, whereas, you know, the, the lizard people might have used sticks in it and it would be above the water and it wouldn't be so heavy that it would start to be swallowed by the, the swamp itself. So you might have some stone structures that were built, you know, only maybe a year or two ago, but have already started to sink within the swamp and are now like starting to get waterlogged and things like that. Right. So even the even the noble made stuff is like half underwater at this point. Sounds deeply noble. <laughs> <laughs> they're really pissed off that they're here. They're not enjoying it. So tactical elements. Well, we're going to have pathways that are next to sinking mud. We have lots of cover from trees, plants, statuary that's now off kilter as it sinks slowly into the swamp. Hidden tunnels under there. Suppose you what could else? have some high points in the uh, in the statues and or even a, a small wall or a watchtower that somebody's one of the nobles has tried to erect. Yeah. A gazebo where you can only stand on the roof now. Perfect. Gazebo. Gotta throw one in there. You always need a dread gazebo. <laughs> <laughs> and that's flammable. <laughs> <laughs> For now. I think with a swamp environment, you always have overgrown trees that are hanging from above as well. So you could have vines. Oh, yeah. Easy to climb up into, easy to swing around. The chandelier of the swamp, they're called. <laughs> Versus swamp water, which is the champagne of the swamp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a perfect environment for nobles. I don't know what I was worried about. Well, and what about uh, as far as tactical? I'm not sure if it falls under the category of some of the, the next things that we're going to add, which is the game-changing events or a tactical element. But you could do something like methane, because methane can bubble out of the swamp and, these, and collect until it eventually erupts. So it might knock players out. It might be flammable. Yeah. Sounds like another thing. It would definitely be a fun way they begin fighting in these large bubbles as they jar the underlying soil with their large spells and other nonsense that large bubbles begin to burst throughout the scene. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. The nobles could even have been so dumb that they've created decor with the gas, using it almost like a helium to fill things. <laughs> then you've got like <laughs> big uh, balloons and floats that the nobles are hanging off of things. Methane gas, that sounds like a recipe for a second Hindenburg. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so we got some explosions in there too. So game-changing events. What do we got there? What could you throw in to start amping up the tension? Oh, this one has a lot of possibilities. We could have entire things eaten up by sinkholes in the middle of a fight. If the lizard folks' gods get involved, we could have their temple rise up out of it. Oh, wow. I like that. Absolutely. When the entirety of the lizard folk, depending on maybe what side of this conflict the players choose to take, whether it's the noble or the lizard folk, that would certainly kick things off when the entirety of this village is surrounded by lizard folk and they're all chanting um trying to get their god to raise their temple yeah and you've even got specific lizard folks that are doing it and if you take them out then it stops the ritual giant whirlpools opening while you know parts of it rise could have a number of things it would be pretty pretty good scene to run the final encounter and for that whole thing I'm a big fan of that moment where the players 
seem like the tides are turning and they have things under control. They're cleaning up what remains of their their enemies for this particular encounter and then throwing another one at them. So the frog hemoth, uh, <laughs> you know, that's going to change the stakes right changer. in the middle. Yeah. yeah. So the local wildlife can also definitely start to change that encounter. And of course, don't forget the uh, lizard folk putt-putt golf course in the corner. (laughs) (laughs) That'll change things. No lizard folk villages without their putt-putt course. That's that's their ancient god, (laughs) Patsy-Patsy. Patsy-Patsy. Well, that's a pretty cool encounter location that we've created in just a few minutes with a little bit of guidance from Gabe. I love it. I can't wait to play. Yeah. I think we're going to have to have these. I see why you like doing this for sure. (laughs) Starting to get on board. Well, yeah, I think that about wraps up the episode. Where can people find all of your work, Gabe? I know we've already kind of uh, mentioned it, but Roll20. Roll20, DriveThruRPG, any number of other smaller platforms. Uh, Some of my work's available on, it's no longer called Power VTT, Astral VTT is I think the current name other places continually type in my name and i'll be around (laughs) (laughs) that's fair are you active on any other social media where can people submit their ideas and thoughts to you uh twitter is the easiest way to reach me very good okay well and anything else that you'd like to plug what do you have coming out this month i'm gonna leave at the end of it but for that i'm hoping to get out as much uh pirate and nautical themed stuff as possible and calling it, you know, I don't do characters, so rather than mermaid, I'm doing May Before the Mast. <laughs> right on. Was awesome. that uh... so I should have some nautical things. I should have dark elf ships coming out. Cool. Wow. Oh, I'm excited to see that pack. Uh was that inspired by yourself or was that kind of uh going on the the latest things that are coming out with D D or uh I took inspiration from D and D's uh Ghost of the Salt Marsh. I Figured if they're doing stuff, people always want to continue their adventures or totally different direction that is all their own. So I figure I should give them some stuff to do that. You know, and honestly, I have found myself rebuilding maps that have already been provided, even maps that I've already purchased on Roll20 with your maps. So absolutely, like the quality is unreal. Uh, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I've spent hours rebuilding stuff just because the quality is so high and it's really what I would expect of myself and for my players for every game. I'm glad it adds to your fun. That's always the goal. (laughs) Everyone having as much fun with the RPG community as possible. It's been really cool talking to you and getting to know you, and I'm definitely going to be more involved in uh, throwing my ideas at you at this point too. Can't wait to see what new stuff you're going to have coming. I can't wait to get it to you. Well. Thank you very much, Gabe, for joining us. Uh, definitely check out all of his work, like we said, in those in those various places. But just Google Gabriel Picard in Google and you will find it. That is the place to Google. That is the place to <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Ass. <laughs> Thanks to Tabletop Audio for all of the sound effects that you heard in this episode. You can always follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and Reddit. And as always, you can join us for this one, Gabe. Uh, Thanks for listening. And play great games. (laughs) Yay, putz putz, the lizard bull guy.